Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Ah, yes, another episode. So, obviously, we're going to be diving into a great conversation around student accountability with our guest, Tom Shimmer, in a moment. But before we do that, Recently, the three of us appeared on another podcast, a show, obviously, I co-hosted Can We Please Talk with uh, my buddy, Mike Leon, and we teased out, I say teased because we didn't spend too much time on this, but this idea about book bannings, and it's something that Stacy, you, Patrice, and myself have been texting and just complaining about, ranting about, rightfully, for a while now, and it's been coming up in so many different places that I felt like we're sort of hitting a point where this is sort of extending the conversation, partly because of a recent news article that's talking about a real legal challenge to this, Stacey, you brought to us. But really for all of us, like what what is going on here? And I'll bring, I'll throw on the table here the most recent complaint about a a poem, actually, for anyone who's paying paying attention in the Washington Post and other outlets. The, the The poem by Amanda Gorman, who we all heard at the inauguration of the president in 2021 the poem the hill we climb has been named recently in a as a book to be listed uh, in miami i think franklin lake so i think it was the district that a person an individual person put forward and said that i have issues with this book um and that was sort of my entry point to most recently what's been irking me about this but uh patrice i'm gonna just kick over to you for a second for like when this conversation has been coming up what are some central like just things that are just really upsetting you or just like questions you have as these as these things are going on what what's been sitting with you recently and even long term in this conversation around books that we're i cringe at this word but but banning yeah i it just it begs a lot of questions but one um just parents privilege and rights and access to curriculum and I, I do feel that it is parents' right to determine what they want their children to be exposed to. However, um, the lengths at which they're going to, in my opinion, violate constitutional rights um, is astounding. And then also just the processes that are in place to do these things, they're taking up viable resources, um, viable time and resources for what could be used towards actual learning. (laughs) Um, And then I'm looking at, so as an example, right? So Amanda Gorman actually posted on Twitter. It is one of the articles um, Stacey shared with us. And the complaint, the form or whatever this is, they're not even stating the correct author. Um, The rationale for for why to remove it is, I mean, loose. I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's flaky at best. and so it just makes me wonder about, you know, I, I'm all for parents' rights. I think parents are among the most disempowered group in, <clears throat> excuse me, in school communities. However, I, it just begs the question, like, how are we activating parents and how are we allowing them to actually get in the way of uh, young people being able to learn? Because um, I'm not so much concerned. Yeah, it's it's more to me about a concern of the larger community and the impact and effects on them um, than on any one individual child. Um, and just honestly, the overt racism 
just to to name it um and just how um incendiary it really is and can be you know Stacey, before we jump to you about the article that we're, we've been all been talking about recently in Edweek, um, the complaint mentioned specific pages that had, as she had put it, um, is not educational and it has indirectly, indirectly hate messages. And she mentions pages 12 and 13. And, you know, as a show, we want to keep people informed. So when I hear something about, you know, there's hate messages, indoctrination, all stuff, I want to sort of put to light what we're actually talking about. So I have a copy of the book here. You have to forgive the rumbling a little bit, but from the poem, right? It was made for, it went from poem to published text. Everyone can now have access to it from your, you know, whatever bookseller you go to. Here are the two pages that allegedly are so problematic. This is from the poem. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Someone needs to explain to me where there's hate here. <laughs> I mean, if you want to make the argument that the line, not even, I mean, a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. I don't know where, where this challenge is from. And it just seemed Again, it reckless. If we're going to just start throwing pages out there, and obviously this person isn't informed because they got the wrong author, right? But if you're going to put forward what you find offensive, and on this show we're going to talk about, one of us is bringing this up. I'm going to, I have to bring receipts, right? Like that's the most natural thing to do here. And as I read that, like I don't, I don't know what we're talking about. But again, Patrice hit on something really important about legal challenges because now we're getting to the place where we've gone from. You know, this outcry of like, you know, indoctrination, this is wrong, parents' rights, and all this stuff. And now we're getting into a place that, Stacey, you can speak to of where this is starting to become a legal matter. I was pleased to see that the the United States Department of Education, um, they have an office of civil rights within that department. And they're investigating some of these book bans. And they're talking about the fact that these book bans could in fact have uh, legal consequences because they're in, in quotes, they quote that it can create a hostile environment because the book bans are specifically targeting books that have LGBTQ plus and um, in their words in the article, minority uh, characters. And, you know, they talk about the impact of not talking to students about the process. They talk about targeting certain populations, which which many of these book complaints are, in fact, as Patrice was mentioning as well. And, you know, in that article, Nick, when we were talking about it, you actually mentioned a quote that you saw about values being, if values are being different than or expressed differently, if families look different, if um, people look different, then all of a sudden that book is, people are putting complaints in about the book, take the book off the shelves. And this is just not the way um, we should be operating in community. Um, we should not be, particularly in school environments, Right. Um, it's about, you know, learning from each other, learning about differences, celebrating differences. And here we have uh, a group or, or a small group 
uh, as we've seen in the in the data, really a small group of parents putting in complaints to pull books off the shelf. Yeah, I I mean, as you know, we want to keep this a little bit limited because I think there's an ongoing conversation here, and something we've teased out internally to bring up on this show is when we think of these banned books, what are the ones that we find most influential to us? And I'm teasing that out to listeners because that is something we're going to come back to uh, as we think about our opportunities in the summer and what books we should be reading uh, or books that we're being told not to read. So coming up next, we're going to talk to Tom Shimmer, getting into conversations about student accountability. What does that, what does the A word in this case mean? And what are sometimes the lasting effects when we think about things in that matter? Tom Shimmer after the break. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Tom is an educator, author, speaker, and consultant from Vancouver, British Columbia. He is recognized as a leader and expert in areas of classroom assessment, sound grading practices, educational leadership, and RTI. Tom, thanks for joining us here today. Oh, great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Awesome. So you most recently published a book, um, and we wanted to know what are you hoping that educators will stop doing and start doing after reading the book? Yeah, uh, the, the the book Redefining Student Accountability is, is all about separating achievement from student behavioral characteristics or attributes or habits of learning. And what I'm hoping, um, I guess, educators will stop doing and then start doing is um, treating them as, I'm hoping they will start treating those as separate entities or separate sort of silos, if you will. How much I know, for example, and when I hand it to you are two different ideas or two different constructs. Now we know we're dealing with one child or one teenager. It's one person, it is the whole child. So there of course is a Venn diagram between students' behavior and their learning in that the more effort and the more sort of responsibility I show, et cetera, it'll probably lead to more learning. But in terms of addressing the issues, um, we have students who need academic interventions and students who need behavioral interventions. They need to learn social skills and, and responsibility and respect and all of that. So my hope is that educators will understand that there are ways to do that without distorting student achievement. Thanks, Tom. And thank you again for joining us. It's a pleasure. So the first three chapters of your book, um, including the title, um, begin with the phrase redefining student accountability. So that essentially connotes that there is a need to redefine or to, that there is a definition and there's a need to like recontextualize what that really even means. I like to refer to accountability as the A word, I've come to loathe it to be quite honest, but I love that you're bringing attention to it in a way that helps us to rethink it. So what is typically the de definition of a student accountability that we come across um, and tell us what's wrong with it from your point of view. The word accountability has traditionally been a code word for punishment. Um, we we often use that word. Uh, we're very cavalier with other people's employment. Uh, we're very cavalier with everyone else in the, in terms of someone needs to be held accountable. And that's usually code for someone needs to be fired. It's either, uh, and we do this especially with, with either, uh, you know, politicians and uh, professional sports coaches. 
We always want someone held accountable. And that's, again, code for being fired. But one of the things that, you know, we would notice in schools is that what we called accountability was actually letting kids off the hook. So, for example, if you were to give me a zero for not handing something in and I was still satisfied with my new grade. So let's imagine I, I had an 86 in your class, just to use percentages for effect. I have an 86 in your class. You give me a zero for a project. That grade goes down to an 83. I still have a B. So the question would be, okay, now what? Um, I, I actually don't have to do that project. I, I, I've, I, I, you can't, I can't go any lower. So in what, I, I often ask people, in what universe have I been held accountable where you've let me systematically opt out of something that you said two weeks ago was important or mandatory? So the redefining of accountability is to kind of redefine it in terms of the learning as opposed to the behavior. So this is looking at it through an academic lens. If you are being held accountable, then all that is essential evidence to determine where a student is in terms of their proficiency is required. We 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 have to have that. So there's no opting out. There's no letting them off the hook. So it's not the academic through the academic lens. We're not holding you accountable for the behavior in the academic silo. We are expecting that assignment to be completed, and we're redefining it as accountability for the learning. We can deal with the irresponsibility and all those other behavioral missteps in the behavioral silo. But from an academic perspective, we want students to submit the assignments that are essential pieces that help us get a clear picture of where they are in their learning. Tom, something you talk about in the book is the idea of contextualizing responsibilities as this conversation comes up. Can you expand on that? Uh, you know, con the context always matters in terms of, of what, what responsibility or what any behavioral characteristic or attribute looks like. We all have different versions of ourselves that show up in different spaces. We have a version of ourselves that shows up at a concert. We have a different version of ourselves that might show up at a family dinner. We have a different version of ourselves that shows up in, you know, a, a ceremony or, or a funeral, or there, there's just always different per parts of ourselves. So all behavior sort of happens, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in, a, in context. And so contextualizing responsibility means that given the context, given the situation at hand, what does it mean to be responsible? So in a school setting, of course, responsibility means a number of different things, including submitting work on time and showing up with your materials and all of those different things. You know, being responsible in a hallway is not about handing material in on time, but it's being responsible to the environment and making sure that, it, you know, if there's something that is damaged that you would let let the principal or a teacher know, or if there's being responsible with your actions in the hallway toward other students. So context will always sort of give nuance and definition to what we mean. You can, you can apply what we mean by responsibility, meaning I am answerable for my actions and I cause my success, et cetera. We can take that and generalize it across different settings, but what it actually looks like in terms of teaching, because that's one of the keys to teaching students these social skills or these behaviors is putting them into context and letting them know what it looks like or what it sounds like or what it feels like. And so putting that into context is really important. Part of this conversation also gets into, as you mentioned about teaching grading behavior and, and especially around self-regulation. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, self-regulation is the ultimate goal, right? I think, you know, just sort of the backdrop of, of the book and where it leads to the last chapters about SEL competencies. But, you know, if you work in a school where there are, say, high rates of antisocial behavior, where students, you know, high rates of, of behaviors that violate social norms uh, is what we typically call antisocial. So it's not antisocial, as in I'm not being social, but antisocial violates social norms. Pro-social means I'm behaving with alignment with social norms. 
So if you have, have a school where there's high rates of, of antisocial behavior, you probably need to take a more adult-centered, teacher-centered approach to sort of regulating the environment to get to a place where you can then start to transfer. But if you work in a school where there are low rates of antisocial behavior, you can probably transfer the responsibility of monitoring uh, to, to the students. So the idea of, of, of self-regulation is that I can regulate myself, that I can monitor myself, and that I have strategies that allow me um, to, to, I guess, look at myself metacognitively, to see myself through a lens of awareness about you know, how I'm feeling, um, my level of efficacy, my confidence, uh, my my expectations of outcome, all of those things can be regulated by students, but they have to be taught how to do that. And they have to be, you know, shown different examples of, of strategies that they might use. So the ultimate goal would be for students to be self-regulatory about themselves, both academically and behaviorally. But we know some kids aren't there right now, so it, so we may have to teach them uh, those skills and, and get them to understand what it looks like. So Tom, we're going to go in a slightly different direction, but definitely connect it to a lot of what you've been talking about. I know on your most recent podcast, you were talking a little bit about um, AI and the use of AI in schools. And I think that very much connects to behavior accountability and 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 self-regulation as as we've been as you've been talking us through. Can you tell me a little more about you know, how do you see AI influencing um, behavior accountability and and self-regulation? But also, you know, what do you think some of the problems might be um, in school setting in using AI or, or not using AI? I think there's a, a couple of big ideas. One would be the ethics of it. Um, and the other would be, dare I say, the hypocrisy. Um, the hypocrisy being, let me start with that one, because that's probably more um, sensational. Um, but the hypocrisy being that as adults, you know, I, I see a lot, especially on social media, I see a lot of people sort of, um, you know, advocating and, and celebrating their use of AI to make their jobs more efficient and easier. Things like, um, oh, I just used AI to build a rubric. Um, I just used AI to grade papers or things like that. And that's all well and good. But I think if our students said, I just used AI to write an argumentative essay, we would call that cheating. And so it's an interesting um, hypocrisy, potentially, that it's okay for the adults to use AI to, dare I say, cut corners, uh, but it's not okay for students to use AI to cut corners. Um, so that leads to the ethics of it. For me, it's about, yes, it's available, and yes, you can do certain things, but the question would be, should you? Should you do certain things? You know, or do you do you truly want AI? I know in the short term, there's a lot of reward to say, yes, oh, AI wrote me my, you know, five paragraph argumentative paper, but I am none the wiser in terms of my own learning and my own knowledge if I don't write the paper or do the research or do the assignment. Now, I do understand in school, sometimes kids are forced against their will to take subjects that they're not interested in. And so I get that. But at the same time, you know, we, we, we have this technology available to us, but at some point we have to find a way to put a cap on it or something that allows us to make sure that we don't lose our ability to think. AI can do a lot of thinking for us, which is great, but we don't wanna become the dumbest people in the history of, of the planet by allowing a machine to do all of our heavy lifting for us. I think that we still want to be thinkers and I still we still want to be um, 
you know, sophisticated learners, and we still want that level uh, to to match our time. That you know, we have to meet the moment of uh, the level of sophistication that we are in in society. So I think that there are questions of ethics, and there has to be at some point a line drawn to say what is acceptable use of AI and and what is an unacceptable use of AI, um, and and how that. And I, I don't really know what the answer is. I just know the dilemma is there. I know we worry about um, the students' use of it, and yet at the same time, you have a lot of educators who are who are sort of trumpeting the, the the benefits of it, which I don't blame them for. This is not a criticism, so to speak. It's just I think it's an interesting dichotomy that uh, when it comes to students, we we take issue with it, but when it comes to us, we you know we crack the code and uh, and somehow we're able to 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 utilize it. So it's an interesting time we live in for sure. Yeah, thanks for that take, Tom. We often have conversations similarly around the dilemma, the ethics, and how do you still um, really value and promote critical thinking, right, throughout this time period. Um, one thing I just want to go back to, as I was asking that question, Tom, you chuckled a little. Can you tell tell us a little what made you laugh when I was asking you about that question? Oh, it just, it makes me, you know, it, it, may, it, 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 la I laugh because it's just, it's, it's, um, I, it's not, it's not a funny laugh. It's just, uh, it's, it's something that we're going to have to learn to cope with. And, um, I don't have the answer to it. And, and it, it makes me laugh because it's just a big one. It's like, yeah, this is, a, this is a huge one because there's so many layers to it that I think we haven't quite thought through yet. And, um, I'm not pretending to have all of the answers because I'm sort of wrestling with the idea itself. I think there could be some great uses of AI. You know what I mean? Like, for example, you could have AI write an essay for you that took the opposing point of view that you have, and then, and then critique it and use that essay and go through the points that it makes and, and think about how you would critically, I suppose, for lack of a better word, how you would attack that argument in terms of refuting it. I think there could be some really great ways to use AI, but we just have to find the line where it becomes, you know, uh, um, we, you know, I, I used the word earlier and I don't mean to sound so, so harsh, but I don't, you know, we don't want to have these fabulous sort of AI sort of opportunities and, and, and technology available to us and simultaneously become the dumbest and the laziest people on the history of the planet. Like we have to somehow stay engaged and find a way to rebrand AI so that we continue to to increase in sophistication and and take advantage of it so that we ourselves become the, the our full potential as opposed to it doing things for us and then we ultimately are 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 no better off um, without it. Like what happens if the internet goes down and you don't have AI at your disposal? Like are you are you debilitated in terms of your thinking or still can you think? For yourself so it just it just makes me laugh because it's such a big one that's for sure <laughs> yeah that it is a big one it's a huge one and yes that is what actually prompted us to ask you about it yeah. so thank you for sharing um so curious right so we've been talking about accountability i'm loving the conversation for one because of the language that you're unpacking i think there are a lot of terms education is full i call the alphabet soup of terms right so <laughs> i appreciate you yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> So I appreciate you um, sharing um, insight and definitions and just contextualizing things in a way that I think is digestible for folks. So we're really curious about impact. Um, this is something that is important in a lot of different ways in our schools. Um, so we're curious about what effective systems of, of student accountability, how they how they contribute to impact in schools and community. Yeah, I think the word systems is the right one because I think that you know anytime you 
ask teachers to remove a practice. And I, I make the distinction between a practice and a system. Practices are what we do with students. Systems are put in place for the adults. And systems create predictability. Um, they, they create workflow. They allow people to kind of settle into the environment. So it, it's very core. No teacher should wonder how to access support. No teacher should have to um, you know, create systems on their own. They, they should know how to access support from administration. They should know when it's you know, kind of time to, to contact families. They should know there should be a system in place that allows us to do that. So the system of, of accountability, you know, has to be looked at through also through the lens of the three-tiered framework of say MTSS or RTI or PBIS. The three-tiered framework helps us understand that no matter what you do, and this is the phrasing I often use with, with teachers. In fact, I was using it last week at a conference. I say, you know, sometimes you have to put things in place. You have to put systems in place that are not going to work for the students you're thinking of. And why that is, is because often when we think about irresponsibility or disrespectful behavior or anything like that, we often think about the highest flyers, right? We think about the kids who have season tickets to the office, the kids who just kind of have, you know, referrals every week. They're probably not going to be impacted by tier one, by the tier one approach to accountability. So what we have to do in schools is we have to put a system in place that creates a foundation or creates a floor. And so a system would mean that ultimately, and I go into detail in this in, in the book, but the idea that if a student has not followed through on their responsibility, it's quite simple. They need to be made to follow through on their responsibility. If they are, for example, a didn't do, and I do make the distinction between can't do's and didn't do's. You know, some students need longer to learn. So after every lesson, a teacher should expect some can't do's. And can't do's need support from their teacher. They need more instruction. They need more help. They need more feedback and all of that. The didn't do's are the students who have the capacity to complete the assignment, but simply didn't do it. Now, I, I rarely, if ever, use the phrase won't do because that requires me to judge their intent. Um, and and all, I, all I know is the truth. And the truth is they have the capacity to do it, but they didn't do it. So I use didn't do. I don't try to use won't do because there's a little bit of emotion behind won't do and a little bit of power behind that as well. So for a system in a school there, there really does need to be a system in place where teachers know that if a student hasn't submitted or has not completed something that is important and in the schools I worked in, we had to have the conversation, although it wasn't a widespread practice, but we had to have the conversation about crossword puzzles and worksheets. Um, but, you know, if it's essential evidence, the student, there would be a system in place that would hold the students accountable for that learning that day. And it would be a system that where there was a supervisor, they'd refer to a space and they would be completing their assignments if they were deemed to be a didn't do. That system will work for about 80 to 90% of your kids. That's a tier one intervention. Anything you do school-wide or class-wide is tier one. And by the nature of the three-tiered framework, by identifying tier two and tier three, you know that there are going to be some students who are unresponsive to that tier. That's the nature of it. So one of the things I try to teach folks is that when you look at the three-tiered framework, remind yourself of two things. One, it's anticipatory. By determining that there's a tier two and a tier three, we are anticipating that there will be some students who are unresponsive to the previous tiers intervention. So you shouldn't feel less than if 100% of your students don't do that. And it can be as simple as, hey, everyone, get out your textbook, turn to page 76. You should, in your head, think 80 to 90% of my kids are going to do that. There's going to be a small group of students that will need a reminder. That's, and the second part is that the tiers also remind us that the intensity of the intervention has to match the intensity of the presenting need. And if the intensity of the intervention doesn't match, the intervention will fail. So that should put our minds at ease. And so we increase the intensity from there. So we put those systems into place, not because they're going to be impactful 
to our highest flyers, but because it's going to settle the context and allow us more time to go deeper with that handful of kids that truly need that individualized support. I know that was a earful or a mouthful, but that's how we have to look at it. We have to be very purposeful and systemic and, 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 and putting things in place that create predictability of support and increase the intensity and, and be very um, straightforward with, with all of that for sure. Yeah, Tom, no need, no need to apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> the, um, especially bright, like just the reference of won't do like thinking about the framework and especially when you reference anticipatory, like always keeping in mind, not maybe who's sort of right in front of your face, but like right. just doing some future thinking around that too. Tom, of course we want to thank you for obviously joining our show, but before, as we wrap up, I want to just give you a moment, just to spotlight. You mentioned the, the podcast you do, obviously we're all in the podcasting game. So an opportunity just to talk about the show that you do and the work that you bring to it. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's creatively called the Tom Shimmer Podcast. I spent about half a day trying to think of a name and and got tired of trying to think of a name. So I just thought I would, you know, the full narcissism emerging and I'll name it after myself. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'd always had this vision of maybe, you know, of course, it's an educationally focused podcast, but I thought maybe, you know, by branching out, I didn't want to just do assessment, things like that. So the podcast consists essentially of, of myself doing three segments. There's an opening segment, uh, what I sometimes call my old man rant. Um, and then there's the interview, which is the bulk of the podcast. And then there's assessment corner, which is the end of the podcast. It's just a 10 minute conversation about either a question or a topic uh, that that uh, listeners send me questions sometimes on email. Most of the time, it's just something I've been thinking about or dealing with over the past week, and I bring it to the podcast to to answer. So, yeah, it's we're up to I think 104 episodes now on on the podcast. I started it like you know 10,000 other people. What do you do during the pandemic? Well, you start a podcast. You buy a microphone on Amazon and you start a podcast. So um, it's it's been really rewarding. It's been a chance for me to to meet some new people, interview them, talk to them, a chance for me to highlight many friends of mine who are authors and speakers to to promote their work as well. So uh, it's very rewarding. It's a labor of love and I certainly enjoy uh, doing it. Yeah. So it's been been a lot of fun. Um, how, how else can people be connected with the work that you're doing? Uh, just your various channels and, and the work yeah. like that. There's I mean. I probably have too many social media accounts. I have uh, my personal Twitter, which is at Tom Shimmer and also at Tom Shimmer pod. Those are Twitter, uh, Instagram and TikTok at Tom Shimmer podcast. Um, just for your listeners, uh, my TikTok account is not me dancing and lip syncing. It's just clips from my podcast. So don't get too excited. You will not see Tom doing any sort of trending dances. Um, and and um, those are social media is probably the, the best way. Uh, of course, the books are available at Solution Tree. And um, there's, you know, if people have questions about uh, my email is is public. So tshimmer at live.ca is a way if listeners have questions for me or want to engage in a conversation, that's how you can get a hold of me. So lots of ways to get a hold of me, uh, messages on social media or email. Um, and I'm happy to engage with anybody who's interested. And that everyone is Tom Shimmer. Thank you so much for joining our show. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. This has been the Educate US podcast a production of Leon Media Network. For more on our show, visit us at leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate us.